Hello, my name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, Rishi Sunak pledges more help for Ukraine as President Zelensky visits the UK. But can Putin be defeated? We'll be catching up with Serena Zabriskie. She's enjoying a brief visit to the United States before heading back to Ukraine, where she has been based for more than a year. Welcome, Zarina. I want to start by talking not about Zelensky specifically, but about a new film that's out now that you appear in, that you've co-produced as well, from Byline TV. It's called The Eastern Front, Terror and Torture in Ukraine. Veteran war correspondent John Sweeney is in it as well. Just tell us about this film, Zarina. Hi, Adrian. Nice to speak to you after a break. We've been really busy and on the road with a byline team with Kaylin Robinson and also with Paul Conroy, a legendary photographer. It was a stellar team and we've been going back between Donbass and Kherson with stops in Kiev and we've been exploring the terror and the torture, going to the hotspots near Bakhmut and in Kherson, right by the Dnipro River, basically following the Russian war crimes that sometimes get underreported because it's hard to get to these places. You have to know people. Obviously, I have some advantage because I've been there for over a year, like you said, and I speak both Russian and at this point Ukrainian. I'm still working on my Ukrainian, of course, but I can get along. So we were lucky to visit with the military. I don't know if you can say you're lucky that you've visited with a torture chamber, but some of them are really hard to access and you have to wait for weeks. And we managed to get to speak to survivors of the Russian torture there. This will be a very powerful film uh, delivered and narrated by John Sweeney, who does not need an introduction. He recently got this bestseller, The Killer in the Kremlin, uh, going on globally. And between Paul, John, and Kaylin's stellar filming, I think we will be delivering quite an accurate and powerful eyewitness story on what's happening there. Because in the pell-mell of news, we may hear these headlines, they come and they go. That's why it's important to go back and visit and emphasise some of the really worst features of Putin's invasion. People who were captured, for example, in the course of that invasion, but not simply captured, tortured as well. Yeah, and we're not talking just about military because you expect prisoners of war, although it is illegal to capture and torture the prisoners of war. But it's not what we're talking about. We're talking about civilians. We're talking about innocent victims of the terrorist regime who became prisoners just because they were residents of the occupied territories. And it's a policy of fear, which Putin's regime is using both in his own country, and which is very efficient, and in the occupied territories. The same goes for the scorched earth policy, which has been used in Chechen war, in Syria, and now we've seen the results in Donbass and in the Kherson area where the whole villages are destroyed. And we will be showing that in the documentary where you drive for miles past 
post-apocalyptic landscape, not one building is intact. And it's more powerful to see it than to hear it. So I really recommend that people watch that. We speak to a lot of Ukrainian people. They deliver the most powerful accounts. So this week, the documentary is about to launch. Just simply look for it on social media. We will be sharing the links. Come and watch it with us. Yeah, the best place to look for it is byline.tv. Couldn't be simpler, could it? Byline.tv. TV, and I can't recommend it highly enough. The Eastern Front, that's available now from Byline. And feeding into this story, Zarina, we have President Zelensky visiting the UK, as well as other European capitals. And the UK, I think it's fair to say, under Rishi Sunak, and prior to that, Boris Johnson, has been one of the strongest backers internationally of Ukraine. Yes, I'm very pleased, of course, to hear that record in a way. Also, it helps to work on the stories when you travel around Ukraine, where not everybody is being allowed everywhere. You know, obviously, it's a war zone. So when you introduce yourself and you say we are British media, I write for the British newspaper, and you see the smiles and you see the nods and they welcome you. Uh, It's a good feeling. So thank you. And of course, the Ukrainian people are very, very grateful. They never take it for granted wherever you go, both civilians and military, from the bottom of their hearts, thank the British people for the help that they receive. They know it, they acknowledge it, it's not taken for granted. That having been said, even with all the help that Ukraine has been receiving, and it's remarkable, in order to gain some significant advances to move on and eventually defeat Putin, much more is needed. And we are talking now about aircraft, we're talking about drones, we're talking about missiles, and F-16. And currently, this is the most important part of the aid package that has been discussed, I believe. And these issues are so important because the number one goal to establish the strong foundation for the counteroffensive that everybody is so looking forward to is to break the logistics of the adversary, to break the ammunition bases, the transportation hubs that the Russian military used to supply their front line. And this is what happened last time during the successful counteroffensive in the fall when the Ukrainian army pushed very successfully using the deceiving maneuver in Kharkov while everybody was expecting the counteroffensive in Kherson. And as a result, eventually Kherson was liberated as well, the city of Kherson. Some parts of Oblast, which is the region, are still occupied. So... This is critical to have, say, drones that could go as far as 200 kilometers and then not just hit the ammunition warehouses, but also bring the reconnaissance and bring the information that then the artillery and infantry need to successfully attack and push the Russian Federation military back and clear the occupied territories. 
Yeah, the weapons committed by Rishi Sunak include air defence missiles, drones. Recently, the UK announced that it would send Storm Shadow cruise missiles as well. But on the question of fighter jets, NATO appears to be unwilling to fully commit to this. And it was interesting that Rishi Sunak said that providing fighter jets was not a straightforward thing. And I've read analysis that suggests that although NATO clearly at some level wants to support Ukraine, they are terrified of being drawn into a more prolonged conflict. And there is this rhetoric, isn't there, around providing F-16 fighter jets? And then there's the reality, which has not been as positive. Yes, in a way, you might see me smiling a little bit here, Adrian, because I've heard this argument again and again and again for over a year. And it's some sort of a game, almost a dance, when first Ukraine asks for certain type of equipment, say, Leopard tanks or high-precision or long-distance missiles. First, it's always a no. It's like some courting in a way. And then there's this long discussion. There's always this rhetoric, like you said, oh, no, 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 we'll be too involved. And then Putin will have this good excuse to escalate as if Putin does not need an excuse. This rhetoric is at fault from the start. He does not need any excuses. He did not need an excuse to start the invasion. He never looks for pretext for anything that he's doing. However, with a lot of noise and discussion and media and diplomacy and whatnot, everybody is an expert. The NATO size and surrenders and leopards are arriving. And now we're watching this with F-16. It was a little bit more difficult with closing the sky. It's still going on, which, as you know, I've been advocating for closing the sky from the start. And if I can speak about my own feelings, because it's impossible to be reporting for over a year of this brutal, bloody war and not feel anything. Anybody who says that is probably being dishonest with themselves. It makes me somewhat angry because we lost so many innocent lives, children, older people, civilians, just because the NATO Western allies were reluctant to provide more help with air defense. And this is very sad, but not much can be done in retrospective. However, moving on to the future, maybe we can cut down this dancing around and this go ahead and deliver F-16 for the sake of ending this horror. One thing that I would like to mention here is that, of course, the Kremlin is not sitting around waiting for the NATO to surrender and deliver all the required equipment. What they do is something that they've been doing all along and something that they're so good at, and it's the information war. And they're very proactive with it. You might see in the news the talks about the necessity of the ceasefire and all the peaceful intentions by the Kremlin, which, of course, is just another bunch of 
false information. The Kremlin is exhausting its resources, both human resources, manpower, military resources, and the equipment. They are now sending to the front tanks that are 70, 80 years old. You will see it in our documentary because some of this equipment has been captured by the Ukrainians. So we've seen the trophy equipment. And it's basically falling apart. And this is what the Ukrainians have to use it. But this is what the Russians are limited to. Because unlike Ukraine, they don't have allies who would be supplying this sort of equipment other than Iran with the Shahids. So in order to regroup and restructure and rebuild their logistics, the Russians need this ceasefire, this peace quote-unquote, talk. And we've seen that before during the uh, nine years of the war in Donbass. It happened again and again. And all that will happen, you don't need to be a prophet or some sort of clairvoyant or even an analytic of some sort. You just need to look back and see that they need a break. They will call for the ceasefire and then they will break it. And the Ukrainian government knows it way too well I believe that the Western allies also are familiar with this situation, and this needs to be stopped. And these peace talks in June, I believe, the second part of June, there will be a Vienna symposium or convention called the Peace Talk with Noam Chomsky and the Brazilian president and all the usual suspects speaking for the peace developments there. And this is nothing but the Kremlin attempt on the hybrid war offensive. And this is how it should be read. So no peace talks with the terrorists. They need to be stopped. This is what Zelensky is doing now, going around Europe, going to the UK, delivering this message. Please give Ukraine weapons so Ukrainian army, highly organized, highly skilled, highly motivated, can use these weapons and stop this war. And the appeal for peace, of course, is a very inviting one. Who doesn't want peace? But we can't forget that Russia was the aggressor. Are people supposed to allow the army of a nation whose president doesn't believe in their sovereign independence to roll their tanks over that country and stand by and do nothing? A country that wants to erase its language, and it's history because that is what Ukraine faces. They go even further because for somebody who has the misfortune of understanding Russian at this point and listening to the Russian media, there's not just calls for destroying the land, but the calls for destroying physically the whole people. They're open calls for genocide. They literally say, kill them all, kill all Ukrainians, kill children. Anybody can listen up. Unfortunately, the artificial intelligence is not at the point where it can do simultaneous translation. But I'm sure if somebody wants to check, they can find the subtitled videos. And it's not a secret that they've been calling for it for over a year at this point. In fairness, Putin isn't making those calls, though, is he? Who who are making those calls in Russia's arena? The Kremlin-sponsored media. Because the only media that is left right now is the Kremlin funded because all other so-called independent channels were either closed or exiled and recognized as uh, so-called undesirable entities or foreign agents. So the only 
uh, mass media is allowed to broadcast directly funded by the Kremlin, and they're delivering the Kremlin messages. So say Channel 1 or Channel 2. You know, I stopped screening them because they all say the same at this point, and the tone is very toxic. It's very hard to listen to them because it's mostly screaming. They use a lot of insults. They use a lot of obscene language. It is very, very toxic informational environment. And this is what the Russian population has been exposed for years, and this is partially the reason why the whole country of Russia seemed to have lost its mind. The whole population has been damaged by this very skillfully engineered propaganda. And as you know, Adrian, I'm an expert on the Kremlin propaganda. So I've written a lot about it over the last 10 years. But the last year I stopped. I stopped covering Russia because at this point it's pretty useless. There's much more sense in covering their crimes in Ukraine and the Ukrainian situation, Ukrainian life during the war, then continuing to dismantle the narratives that at this point so monstrous. There actually was a terrific article in the byline supplement. I feel bad because I forgot the name of the author, but he's a scholar. He's an Oxford scholar who also spent a number of years working in Donbass as a peacekeeper. And it's called Disinfo Folklore. And he goes deep, deep into the roots of this propaganda. That was a brilliant analysis. So anybody who wants to know more, I really recommend. Yeah, this is an article on bylinesupplement.com by Stephen Douglas called Disinfoclore. So well worth reading. Zarina, how concerned are people in Ukraine about the geopolitical situation. We know that the United States is concerned about issues in Taiwan and China's territorial ambitions there. We've also seen Donald Trump saying that if he's re-elected president, he would be able to solve the Ukraine-Russian crisis in 24 hours. I think it's fair to say that he would be less willing than Joe Biden to support Ukrainian independence and sovereignty. Is there a a concern that if Russia can hold on for long enough that the will of the West, or at least some of the Western powers, may weaken? Yes, definitely. I have to say that, of course, Ukraine is a big country and there are all kinds of people in Ukraine. And if we are talking about just regular people who still living in Ukraine, haven't left, not even military, are preoccupied with the daily reality, with the need to survive, with the daily air raids, which are exhausting. You get used to it, but it nevertheless, it exhausts you. Like if there's an air raid for five hours at night, especially if you have small children and you have to sleep in the hallway or in the bomb shelter, as you can imagine, actually, as I speak, there are air raids coming up right now all over Ukraine. I have the my app on, so I can see that. So it's hard to think far and wide. Not everybody is concerned about Taiwan 
let's be honest, or not everybody is familiar with the American political landscape, which is not also that easy to figure out if you live in a faraway country during the war. Of course, political analysts are very well aware, and uh, politicians, of course. This is, I think, why Zelensky is now going on this whirlwind visit all over Europe. It's a very smart way of fighting hybrid war. It's a direct speech from the popular political leader delivering the message from Ukrainians. Of course, he's not going to China, and he hasn't been in the States since his last visit. And I don't know if it's necessary, but yeah, it would be interesting to see what China will come up with and if it will be possible for Ukrainian diplomats and politicians to convey their message to the Chinese government to see if they can find at least a neutral position. Of course, it's very clear that in a way China can see It's interesting, Taiwan, in the same light as the Russian aggression in Ukraine. So we will see where that will go. Of course, economy here is a big issue, too. China is interested in partnership and signing up with Russia is not in its direct interest as well. As for Trump, I'm currently in the U.S. and kind of catching up on what's happening here and what I see immediately is that uh, the Kremlin is working very hard on promoting Trump's candidacy for the next presidential election. It's all very clear. The trolls are at work on the social media. And of course, the Kremlin would love for Trump to come back. And that would be a really bad situation for not just Ukraine, but the whole European Union and democracy in the world. And let's hope that we can stop this process. Serena, thank you so much for joining us. Serena Zabriskie, currently in the United States, but heading back to Ukraine very shortly, where she has been stationed for more than a year. And you can see her in a film that she has co-produced, starring John Sweeney as well. Kaylin Robertson has made the film too. The film is called The Eastern Front, Terror and Torture in Ukraine, and it's made by Byline TV. Just head over to byline.tv to watch it. I really recommend that you do. Before we go, just a reminder that this podcast is funded by subscriptions to The Byline Times. That's our monthly newspaper, which combines the best of our online offerings with content that you can't read anywhere else. Get details on subscriptions over at bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. This episode has been produced by me, Adrian Goldberg, and Harvey White. It's made by We Bring Audio for the Byline Times. We'll see you again soon. Cheers now. Bye-bye.